0: again. Hopefully you can keep your Bibles open to 1046 if you've got a pew Bible, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and uh, I'm going to pray for us before we jump in. Let's bow our heads. Enlighten us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, in true understanding of your Holy Word, enabling us to handle it faithfully and to receive it in true fear and humility. Amen. Uh, Well, the year before I started working at the first church I went to uh, after Bible College, uh, a year before I started, uh, a number of people were arriving, as people do here, uh, early in the morning, getting ready uh, to set up for the most exciting day uh, of the year for the church. It's Christmas morning. People are gathering together. It's a time of uh, family and fun and celebration. It's a time where we remember uh, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, but as I walked into the the church building, there was something a little bit uh, different that they noticed straight away, and that was that a couple of the wooden pews had been pushed into the middle of of the aisle. And it became clear uh, what had happened when they looked above those pews, and usually there's a bracket there and there's a projector connected to the bracket, uh, but this time uh, there was just a couple of wires hanging. And over the next 20 minutes, as they noticed Uh, that there are no musical instruments there anymore, no sound equipment, uh, that the office uh, didn't have its computer anymore and that somebody had tried to move a 200-kilo safe, uh, they realised they had been robbed on Christmas Eve. Uh, You can imagine how upset people would be uh, arriving at church expecting a, a day of celebration... Uh, to realise that someone else had seen it as an opportunity uh, to grab stuff and maybe to grab some extra stuff that had been left for this big day. And now over the following couple of weeks, they tracked down uh, the source of the crime. There's a, a nearby caravan park, which was a place you went if you just had nowhere else to go, a really kind of sad and difficult place. And a couple of guys had gone up from there late on Christmas Eve and thought this is an opportunity for them to make some money, to grab some stuff. Uh, How do you respond to something like that? I know how I'd be tempted to respond, and my temptation would be to say, this is a moment where you build bigger fences. Uh, We can, can no longer trust when people come to our church. So I need to be suspicious. If somebody's new and I don't like the look of them, maybe they're casing us out. I know what the people are like in that caravan park, so maybe the answer is uh, we need to keep an eye two blocks uh, uh, to the south of us all of the time and make sure we don't allow those people in. Uh, This is a time for us to gather together. We need to care after ourselves, to look after our stuff, and to shut other people out. Uh, The easiest way to respond when we are mistreated in a way like that or mistreated in other ways in our lives is to build bigger fences in our life. I don't want to be hurt, I don't want to be uh, disappointed, and so I'll keep other people out. But that is not what this church did. Rather than building bigger fences, they decided their answer was to build better friends. They started by looking for a couple of sponsors where there are a couple of people who'd be happy to buy a, a couple of kilos of sausages and some minute steaks once a month. And they gathered together a team of people from this church Uh, And then a couple of months later, they went down to the caravan park uh, and every month they'd run a free barbecue uh, where they'd go down, where they'd chat with the people, where they'd get to know the people who were living in these difficult circumstances. Instead of putting up fences, uh, they realized that they needed to be like Jesus in the way they spoke to these people to get to know them. Uh, Now, I'd love to say that uh, what that meant was there was a mini revival in the caravan park and then everybody instantly became a Christian. Uh, That didn't happen. Uh, But by the time I came to that church, it was exciting to see a new relationship that we had with these people, uh, that we could invest in their lives, that we could be Jesus to them in a way that they wouldn't otherwise hear. Uh, And we did have the opportunity uh, several Christmases later to run a Christmas service in that caravan park with them. If you read about Paul's experience of ministry as he travels toward Thessalonica, uh, you could understand why he might be tempted to build bigger fences in his life. Uh, In the nearby town of Philippi to the east of Thessalonica, uh, he had done this wonderful thing. There was a young girl, she was a slave girl, and she had a demon in her that caused her to prophesy, uh, and uh, she needed help, and so Paul... I uh, exorcised the demon from her. He cared for her, he looked after her, and you'd expect that would mean uh, a kind of great support, great encouragement. We can read all about it in the second half of Acts 16. Uh, but instead, uh, the slave girl's owners got mad because she could no longer do this special trick that she had. And so instead, they whipped up a crowd of people. There was a mini riot, and in the end, Paul was beaten and he was jailed. Now, you can read there's a wonderful story about how he almost escapes jail and then the next day he does leave jail. But the net effect is he is told, you need to leave town. You need to get out and go, otherwise we can't guarantee what's going to happen to you. And so you can imagine him walking on the road outside of Philippi. He's uh, beaten, he's bruised, and he's thinking, I just don't want to do that again. That was horrible. I did a good thing and I was hurt for it. Maybe I'll just go back to Jerusalem. Maybe I can go where the church is healthy, where they'll love me, where I'll be looked after, and I can just relax. Uh, But that isn't what he does. Instead, this is what the beginning of chapter 2 tells us. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters that our visit to you wasn't without result. On the contrary, after we'd previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. Paul's response to being outrageously treated is not to build bigger fences, to keep himself safe from those who might beat or imprison him, but to build better friendships And in doing this, he shows a really unique perspective on the gospel and suffering. Paul shows that the gospel is of such great value that people of impure motives will oppose it. If evil men are working hard to stop him, then that that actually encourages him even more. He knows it's such an important thing that he's doing, uh, that it is worth all of this and everything if he gets to preach the gospel. And so he arrives at Thessalonica uh, eager to build better friendships, and this is what we see in chapter 2. And if you want to know what the deepest kind of friendships are, uh, they are those friendships where you see yourselves not as just an acquaintance who runs into each other occasionally, but you see each other like family. And so it's fascinating that we see here three different family titles uh, that Paul uses for himself and for them as he's relating to them in one a half of a chapter. He says that they are his brothers and sisters. He says that as he's cared for them, he's treated them like a nursing mother. And then finally, as he seeks to grow them, he's been like a spiritual father to them. So we're going to think about those three before we uh, uh, think about some applications at the end. Uh, my all-time favorite uh, TV show uh, is a show called Band of Brothers. I've watched it, I would say, at least a dozen times. Uh, broadly speaking, it's a show about the 101st Airborne Division in World War II, and it follows them from the first time they're formed uh, when they get dropped in D-Day all the way to the end of World War II. Uh, now, on one side, it's really, that's what it's about. It's just about a bunch of guys in the Army, uh, in the Air Force, I should say. Uh, but in reality, the reason why I love it so much is that it's really about when people go through great adversity, how they are bonded together. When they're living with each other, when they're living for each other, when they're willing to die for each other and for a greater cause, a cause that's bigger than them and maybe the whole company, they become a band of brothers. They are people who are deeply invested. Now, of course, there's been a part of me that has never understood the title because I had a little brother and we were not like a band of brothers in that sense. Uh, where these guys were all about the blood, sweat and tears that they were willing to give up for each other. Uh, my brother and I were about the blood, sweat and tears that we extracted from each other when mum wasn't looking. And yet at the same time, we do know uh, that our family, with our family we have a different kind of relationship. Uh, even though he lives on the other side of the globe now, Uh, and we don't get to speak that often, my brother and I are connected in a way that is almost impossible to explain to somebody, except for the fact that we all experience something of that if we're lucky. We have a unique investment in family. And in chapter 1, Paul lays out to the Thessalonians that they are a real answer of prayer for them, for him I should say, because they know what it's like to have been persecuted, In fact, we're told in chapter 1, verse 6, that they imitated him in this, that they continue to care even through persecution. And so Paul starts the second chapter by calling them brothers and sisters. Like uh, siblings, they've had similar experiences and that actually draws them closer together. Uh, Furthermore, he builds on this in verse 9 when he uses the same phrase again. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you we preach God's gospel to you. Uh, Paul has worked at building better friendships and he does this partly by making sure that he's in no way a burden. He doesn't want to be the the sibling that other people resent because they're always taking stuff. And so we expect he did what he he does two chapters, uh, uh, two towns later in Corinth, and that is uh, he was a tent maker by trade. And so during the day he worked so that he'd make his own living. And then at night he would preach the gospel to these people. He didn't want them to be confused in any way. And so he made sure that there was nothing that got in between uh, them and the gospel. No expectation of what they had to do for him. Uh, Now, uh, as a brief aside, I'm enjoying brief asides in this series. Uh, Some read this and they see this as a sign that maybe this is something we should be doing today as well. Uh, Maybe myself and Ed and Greg and Chris, uh, are we just draining resources from the church that could be used elsewhere? And so we should go back to the jobs that we had before. So uh, during the week, I could uh, be a librarian or work in outdoor education so I can pay for my own ministry. Maybe Greg can be going back to being a male model so that he can pay for what he does as well. Uh, Is that what we're supposed to be like? Uh, And I'd say that the answer is a sort of a yes and a no. Uh, On one side, it's no, because you can look to something like 1 Timothy 5 and see Paul reminds Timothy as he's working with the Ephesian church, that is an established church, uh, that it is fair that they support him in his ministry. In 1 uh, Timothy 5.18, it says, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages an established church that has been there for a while. They have gospel foundations. Uh, They have the structures to be able to care for somebody in ministry so that they can do what they do uh, full time, all of the time, that there's no other distractions for them. But at the same time, as Paul arrives in Thessalonica, uh, they aren't an established church. He's the first one, we think, to bring the gospel to them. And so he wants to make sure there is no impediment to them to the gospel, that they don't feel like they're paying for something, that he comes there free of charge. This is good news for them. Uh, And we understand that this is the kind of thing uh, that we do as well. Uh, So that's why, as we've been talking over the last couple of months about our intention uh, to employ a new minister... Our goal for the new minister we want to bring on next year is that we would train them for three years so that we can send them out to be a church planter and that we would support them when we do that. If they are growing a church in a gospel-poor area, that we want to make sure that they are supported by others so that they can focus on what they do. It's why we're so passionate about our linked missionaries. Uh, the French's who were here uh, a month or so ago, when they go uh, back to Spain, uh, we make sure that in that gospel-poor country that they can do their ministry of running mock courses, uh, PTC courses, without ever putting financial strain on the very small church that is there. Uh, Paul says he could have arrived at Thessalonica uh, feeling weary and run down and expected he'd be looked after because he's an apostle, he's one of God's chosen uh, people to take the gospel out but instead he treats them uh, like a good brother or a good sister would, uh, making sure by going to great lengths that there is nothing that gets between them and the gospel. That they want, he wants to show them so that they can imitate that example they have when they go under their own persecution. Uh, But for this to happen, for them to really grow, it's first required that they actually be fed, that they actually know what the gospel is, that they can see what it is. And so he uses another analogy when he says he's been to them like a nursing mother. Uh, When you have uh, brand new babies, we've had four kids in total. Uh, One of the many things that stresses out new parents is thinking about all of the rules when it comes to feeding. There's a million books about this. Uh, So if you're lucky, when you start, you might be able to breastfeed your kids. Not everybody can do that. And so for some people, formula might be the answer. Uh, But then when you really start getting in the books, you have all of the stresses about uh, when do I introduce new foods? Uh, How do I introduce them? Uh, If I do it too early, am I causing allergies or am I stopping allergies? I remember we had like a mesh dummy thing that you could stick meat in so the kid could suck on that to get used to the flavor. That is the grossest idea I think I've ever heard of. Uh, And we tried uh, with all of our kids to sort of uh, build them up this way so that we didn't do the bad stuff and we did do the good stuff. Uh, We tried, uh, but it only worked for the first two. And that is because one day, as uh, we were probably cleaning around the house, Shona turns around and she finds our older kids uh, with the twins and they had decided this is the time to feed uh, them tomato sauce. This is how I imagine it, that they actually had a squeeze thing and they were just, boom, you know, straight down their throats. But I suspect there was a spoon or a finger or something like that. And that's because for a toddler, somebody who isn't mature themselves, they're not thinking about the nutritional value of something. They're not considering, is this the appropriate time to add this new food to the diet? They're just thinking, I love sauce, so I'm going to give my siblings sauce. But a nursing parent or a nursing mother has every concern for their child. Not only do they want to make sure that they get all the good stuff, but they want to make sure that they keep the unhealthy things for them as well. They don't want to give them the spiritual tomato sauce, the kind of thing that uh, tastes nice going down, but is really just sugar. Now, Paul makes clear that this has been his job as he's spoken to the Thessalonians. Look in verses 3 to 7 if you have the passage in front of you still. Uh, Verse 3, he says, we haven't come with error or impurity or a desire to deceive. Uh, Verse 4, they haven't come with the aim of pleasing people. It's not popular opinion that drives them. And again in verse 6, we haven't come for the glory of people. Verse 5, they haven't come with flattering speech or greedy motives. Uh, All of these things, false teaching or flattery or a desire for popularity, are the tomato source of teaching. They go down nicely but they don't actually add anything. They don't actually grow you. You may enjoy every meal, but your teeth rot and your health suffers. Our Parents care for their kids because we're not just worried about them right now, but we want to see them grow into maturity, to have good habits, and to go on to be healthy and responsible adults. And similarly, this is Paul's concern. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... So we speak, not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. Uh, Paul's longing is to see his brothers and sisters grow into spiritual maturity. He knows he is responsible for them and that God sees his heart as he acts in this way. He understands that this good news that he shares with them is building a firm foundation to help them uh, build on this. And it's not only about the good news that Paul fed them, but also Uh, every effort that Paul was willing to make to see them actually grow in this. And so he uses this third analogy to get to that, as that of a father. Uh, Verse 11, 12. uh, As you know, like a father with his own children, uh, we encouraged and comforted and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul wants to be like a brother to them. He gets alongside them, they have shared experiences and he knows that he's uh, relentlessly for them. He's like a nursing mother. He wants to make sure that they consume everything good that builds them up, that gives them firm foundations, but also that they avoid the spiritual tomato sauce that he isn't like that in their lives. And then finally he says, I want to be like a father figure. I'm urging you on, I'm pointing you to your true father in heaven. Of course, we're not all... uh, Uh, so lucky as to have a father who lives absolutely and unabashedly and consistently in our corner, somebody that's always advocating for us. Uh, But by the grace of God, many of us are lucky enough to have those kinds of father figures in our lives. Uh, Maybe you were partway through school when you had that teacher who saw something in you that you hadn't seen in yourself and you think, they they helped me to have confidence and to go on and do well in in the HSC in life. I know people in this church who have said, I had a soccer coach who changed my my whole life because he just loved me in ways and made me feel confident that I could actually play and do well. Or maybe we're really lucky and you've had somebody in your life who's done this in your Christian life. Somebody who helps you to mature, who models good habits, who gets alongside you and encourages you. This is what Paul is to the Thessalonians. He wants to bring them into new life through the gospel. He wants to make sure that they have firm foundations, what they know is the center of all things. But then he says in verses 11 and 12 that he wants to encourage and comfort and implore them to continue in a walk worthy of God. Now, we want to note here in verse 12, it's not saying that they are walking and earning their relationship with God. In fact, God is still the one, it says, that calls them into his kingdom and glory. But having been given this free gift of a new relationship with God, uh, earned by Christ's death and resurrection, Paul wants them to act in such a way that reflects this good thing that they have been given. And so Paul's goal is to build a better friendship by being like a father figure to them, to actually model what he wants to see in their lives as well. That he wants to see them not acting out of duty, I've become a Christian so I have to do this stuff, but out of a desire, a desire to be more like the Jesus that has saved them from the coming wrath of God and called them into new life. If you haven't worked it out yet, uh, the big idea and the big application of our day-to-day is a simple one. Uh, as a church, that we want to be a church that doesn't just build big offences, uh, but that we are a church that is committed to building better friendships in our lives. Uh, so what I want to do just to finish up is just, just to sort of a, a tease out what are a couple of ways that we might actually do this. Uh, the first is, I think it means for us as a church uh, that we need, when we look out to the people of Orange, even the people who might be antagonistic to us in our faith, uh, we need to see people who are made in the image of God, as Genesis 1 tells us, that they've been instilled with purpose and dignity and value, even if they treat us horribly, outrageously, as Paul says of the uh, the Philippians. Because uh, the reality is, and I'm sure you've experienced this as much as me, uh, that in popular culture, as you go online, as you listen to the media, uh, we are, are becoming more and more countercultural in the way our our culture is not a Christian one that people do treat us badly, that people will say things about us and slander us. And the temptation when that happens is to say, we need to build big offenses as a church. Uh, we could gather together as a couple of hundred people and we could affirm each other and what we believe, that we could have a great time. We could be a holy huddle and we could be happy for the next 20 years. Uh, but that is not what God calls us to. God doesn't call us to be an insular people who just uh, reaffirm each other and don't think about the outside world. And Paul is the great example of this, that our best response to negative reactions to the church is not to respond in kind, but to treat our accusers with the honour and dignity that God treats us as being made in his image. That we might act in such a way that the goodness of the gospel shines out in our lives. That we might tell a better story by living our lives in such a way that people want what we have. Peter touches on this in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, when he says this, conduct yourselves honorably amongst the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. We want to treat our detractors like they are brothers and sisters. Uh, now, that might sound a little bit of abstract to you. What does this actually look like? How do I do this? I have one practical way that I, I want to encourage this week. And that is that uh, I'm starting up a a prayer group who's going to meet together and we're going to pray for the next three to six months about how we as a church might actually invest in our community more thoughtfully. Uh, Is there an area where uh, our church or other churches aren't caring for people in need? Is there an area where we have gifts and skills and talents and we can invest our skills and talents in a particular way? If that sounds like something you might be interested in, uh, there's a a sign up sheet at the the welcome desk in the overflow where you can put your name and email down, and I'll let you know when we're going to come together and pray about that. If we want to be a church that is actually speaking into our community and caring for our community, then prayerfully we can think about how we might do that. As we do that, secondly, uh, we want to be like nursing mothers who care and want to nourish our children. It's great that we have been saved by grace through faith. But we still want to honour God by helping the people in our community know what the spiritual tomato sauce is uh, and also those things that nourish and help us grow. Uh, One of the things I love most about OEC uh, is that we have uh, parents uh, and grandparents and family members and non-family members who help run our Sunday school week by week that we have people who are keen to help out at Simply Christianity and other courses so that we can make sure that we have firm foundations as we come together. Uh, But it's not just about structural things. It can also be how we can do things personally. So I have one last challenge for you. And that is to ask yourself, as we look at the end of chapter 2, is there one person that I could encourage or comfort this week? Paul said that he encouraged, that he comforted, that he implored each one of them to walk, walk worthy of God. Uh, is there a thoughtful note you could write? Is there a phone call you could make? Is there somebody who's doing great stuff who you can just encourage them this week? Uh, how might you be somebody that God is using to build up his church? Let's pray about that now. Let's bow our heads. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us that you, Lord, show us as the great model of what it is uh, to love us like brothers and sisters, as Jesus did amongst us, that you have nursed us like a a nurse mother, feeding us with the good word of the gospel so that we might grow and that you, Heavenly Father, continue to care for us and spur us on. And so we pray, Lord, that we might look to the Thessalonians, we might look to the good news of how Paul has seen them grow, and that we might prayerfully, uh, thoughtfully uh, seek this in our lives and our communities as well. And we pray that you would use us to achieve these ends. In Jesus' name, amen.